And thank you, praise team and worship team. What wonderful worship today. I just love that. And all those people getting baptized. Isn't that a blessing? I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, see how truthful you are today. How many of you have ever felt un underappreciated? How many of you have ever felt unthanked? How about unrecognized? Well, then this message is for you because we're talking about God's unsung heroes, the ones who made a huge impact, but they're not on the front pages of the scriptures. They're not front burner people. They allowed the front burner people to be everything they became. They were the strength behind the scenes. They were the exploit doers that made the front burner folks look better. And so we're talking all about servanthood here in our church because we're growing. We've started Saturday night and you'll notice on your bulletin that there are chairs there with people in them and some of them are empty and there's a shadow in them with a question mark. That is showing that there's people out there who are confused, who don't know what to do with their life, who don't know what life is all about, and we want to reach them for Christ. So we've gone to a Saturday night service to make room uh, for God to bring more people on Sundays. We're reaching people, and we want to believe the Lord to touch them. And it's going to take everybody. It's not a one-man show, four-man show, it's not just the pastoral team, it's everybody. And so I want you to know that though you feel like an unsung hero, God knows your name. And we're going to see that today. Let's look at 1 Chronicles chapter 11, 22 to 24. Here's another unknown, unsung hero. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzael, who had done many deeds. What had he done? Well, he killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. There's a book after that verse right there. I've never read it, but I think that's something like the title. And what did he do? He also killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. That's nine feet. There are basketball agents who would love to find this guy. But he was killed. And in the Egyptian's hand, there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff. That is, um, <clears throat> Benaiah went down to this man, this giant with a staff, like a shepherd's crook, and wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand. I guess he reached it out with that little crook part and grabbed it and pulled it and wrenched that spear out of his hand and killed him with his own spear. Well, these things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and he won a name among three mighty men. God, uh, David spotted that guy and said, I want him on my team. I want him to be a mighty man. Let's pray. Father, help us today to honor you, glorify you. And Lord, I know that in this sanctuary, there are mighty men and women of faith and of God who are going to rise up, strengthen the house, and help this church as one team to reach the world starting right here. We're going to bless this region with the presence of the Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, hello, mighty man, or if it's a woman, mighty woman.
Well, we shared last week that David had two groups of men at his disposal. He had a group of 30 and he had a group of three. He's like Jesus who had his three, Peter, James, John, his 12, his 70. Both David, who was a type of Christ, and Jesus put people in categories, not in a demeaning way, but in a structured way. And we read last time and looked last time at his top three mighty men. Now today I want to move down into the 30 because Benaiah was among the 30. He had actually been made captain of David's bodyguard and he was made captain of David's bodyguard based on three great incredible deeds of valor that he did for which he became famous. Now the first one was he smote these two lion-like men of Moab. This feat distinguished him because these two men were clearly by their names ferocious, serious, awesome fighters, and he took them on at the same time, one against two. And he won the battle, and David said, huh, notice that. Now the second great deed of Benaiah was that he fought an Egyptian, this man of great stature, nine feet tall, about the size of Goliath, who David brought down. This man had a tremendous spear. It says like a weaver's beam, six or seven inches thick. We would liken it to something like a flagpole. He just had this awesome, frightening spear that because of his size, he was able to handle and hurl with great accuracy. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, met this huge man with his great spear and using only his staff, he somehow knocked it out of this giant's hand, seized it and killed the giant with his own spear. And David said again, huh, that's impressive. Now this, these first two deeds of valor were done in front of others. No doubt in my mind when he slew the two men of Moab, there were others watching, it was public. When he slew this giant Egyptian, it was public. He was, he was a part of an army, nine feet tall. You can't do that in private. But this third deed, when he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day, nobody was there. We could say that it was a private victory that brought him public promotion. Can I tell you today, many of you are in a battle right now. And it's a personal battle. There may not be very many at all that know about it, if any. But can I tell you how important it is that you win it? And you're going to win it. Because when you win those private battles, it sets you up for public promotion. David killed his lion and bear when nobody was looking. He killed Goliath publicly, but the lion and bear, nobody was there. But God and the angels watching. And he killed them. And it set him up for public promotion your battles are important. How you respond to them are important because they are the step towards greater usefulness. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Jeff, this is all very inspiring, what he did, these great feats. What an incredible guy. What a superman. But how does it matter to me? Let me tell you how it matters to you and to me. What this Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did. It says in Romans 15, verse 4, whatever things were written before in the Old Testament were written for our learning, that we through them, through the stories, through the accounts, might have patience and comfort of the Scriptures and that we might have hope. 
So these accounts, which are not myths or fairy tales, they're not legends that weren't true. They weren't written by Homer or Brothers Grimm. These are real stories, real accounts of real men who did real feats of valor, the real supermen, superheroes of history. They happen so that we can have hope in our own battles. So we're to learn from these things. Now, having said that, I want to learn from Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. And let me just show you a few things we can learn first. We see that the three enemies that Benaiah overcame are all types and shadows and pictures and illustrations, symbols of the enemies that you and I face today, every single day. Matter of fact, the New Testament identifies these three enemies, his three victories, identify three enemies in our life that the New Testament recognizes and tells us that we are at battle with. Now, first we're told that Benaiah smote two lion-like men of Moab. Well, who was Moab? What was Moab? Where did the Moabites come from? And why does it matter? Well, back in the book of Genesis, we're told that when Lot, remember when Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, his family was there and the angels visited him and said, I'm about to judge these cities. You better get out of here. He actually had to finally grab Lot by the hand and, and usher him out. And it says that when he fled from Sodom, he hid with his two daughters whose husbands remained behind and were judged in the judgment. And they went into a cave and there in a tragic moral fall, we're told that Lot was made drunk by his two daughters. And then in his drunken stupor, he sired children by each of his own daughters. Totally gross, totally revolting, but that's what happened. Out of those daughters and the two children came the Ammonites, Ammon, and the Moabites, Moab. So the Moabites, very important here, were closely related to the Israelites through Lot and grew up right next to them, the wheat with the tares. And you know that any place you find the Ammonites and the Moabites in the Bible, those two tribes, though they grew up right next to Israel, they were the committed and bitter enemies of Israel, God's people, for time immemorial. All through the Bible, the Ammonites and Moabites were the bitter enemies of God's people. Now here's how it matters to you and me. We have an enemy within us that we also are related to. In the New Testament, it's called the flesh. It's referred to as our self-life or the old life. And Moab in the Bible is a picture of the flesh throughout the Word of God. Moab pictures, illustrates, symbolizes the flesh. So just as Moab was related to Israel, our flesh is related to us. It's part of us. We can't get rid of it this side of heaven. We can crucify it. We can walk in the Spirit, and if we do that, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But let you or I go without walking in the Spirit, and we will walk in that old Moabite, that old flesh. It lives in the back room of the house of our life like an unwelcomed uncle. There he is. And so Benaiah, figuratively speaking, got victory over the flesh. We're to learn from that. Now, next we're told that Benaiah slew an Egyptian, this nine-foot-tall giant. Egypt is also used as a type or a picture of another enemy throughout the Bible that the Bible, New Testament, warns us about. 
Egypt was the leading nation of the world of that day. It was the country that was looked up to as the source of worldly power. Egypt was the nation that ruled the earth. It possessed vast armies and awesome temples. It's pharaohs with all their pomp and splendor and its libraries and accumulated wisdom were the envy of the world. But Egypt is a picture of the superficial glamour and empty glory of the world. It's a picture of the world that promises what it never delivers, that beckons to us and calls to us like the sirens on the shore in Ulysses' tale who, who sang their song to bring the sailors to shipwreck on the shore. The world calls to us, but it's empty. There's nothing in it. Now, I don't mean God's creation. I love God's creation. I am amazed at God's creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Every single day they utter their speech and night after night they show forth the knowledge of the living creator. I love his creation. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the world system over which the devil is God. John warned about it and said, love not the world, the world system. Because here's what's in it nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, that being, I don't need God. We don't need God. We're going to live life without God. That's the boastful pride of life. Lust of flesh, lust of eyes, boastful pride of life, don't need God, are not from the Father, but they are from the world, and the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. We are to not love that evil world system. So this second victory of Benaiah over a giant Egyptian is clearly an illustration of a man who also overcame the world. So we've got our mighty man Benaiah. First he defeats the flesh. Now he's defeating the world. I'm encouraged by him. Because if he can do this without the New Testament, without the filling of the Holy Spirit, without the Lord Jesus Christ living in his heart. He had an example, and the example was David. That was the Old Testament type of Christ, or one of the Old Testament types of Christ, but that's it. He didn't have what we have, and yet he overcame the flesh, and he overcame the world, and it didn't stop there, because this mighty man, Benaiah, also overcame the lion. He killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I read afresh this week what a lion can do, just so you'll know. He finds himself in a pit in a snowy day facing the king of beasts. I read that a lion with one blow of his paw, whack, can smash the human skull like you would break an egg. Boom, you're gone. He'd slap you and your skull would cave in. A lion is able to bite through any bone to the, of the human body, including the thigh bone, like it's a chicken bone. With one crunch of those jaws, he smashes that thickest of bones in the body. And to face this kind of ferocious beast in a pit in terrible circumstances on a snowy day is an extremely courageous thing to do. And this is what Benaiah did. Now the parallel for you and I is clear in this third victory. Our enemy is the devil and Peter said he's like a lion. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's our ultimate enemy right now, the devil. He walks around. He is sinister. He's like a lion. Peter said, this is what he's like. If I could draw a parallel and tell you what the devil is like, he's like a hungry 
ravenous, hunting, stalking lion that has tremendous authority and power. He roams around looking for somebody, literally in the Greek language it says, to eat alive. He's a devourer, a destroyer. So here in Benaiah's story, we see a man defeating the three great enemies of the Christian in a figure. That is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's why he's called mighty. And can I tell you today, church, we're called to defeat through Jesus Christ, the world, and the flesh, and the devil. That's our call. And that's our battle. Now I want to go back to the lion. And I'm going to focus on the lion kill today. First, know this, that everybody in here, everyone, has a lion in your life somewhere. For Beniah, the lion was the worst possible foe he could have encountered in a pit on a snowy day. And most of us have something like that. It's leaping into your mind right now as I speak. You're already thinking of what your lion is. It's something you fear. Or it's a weakness that stalks you and it has stalked you for years. It's the lion in your life. Something you feel helpless to defeat because it's bigger than you, stronger than you. And it might be a painful memory. It stalks you all the time. Or a crushing disappointment you haven't been able to get over. And it's there, lurking in the shadows, ready to pounce if you start thinking about it. Maybe the loss of a loved one, you haven't been able to get over it. Or some haunting memory you've got of abuse. Or maybe of a sin you committed and though God's forgiven you, you can't forgive yourself. Sometimes we need to look in the mirror and say, I forgive you. But you can't forgive yourself. You know that God has, but you can't let yourself off the hook. And it's like a lion. It comes at you. And you start to serve God and it pounces. You start to get regular in church and it pounces. You start to move on in the things of the Spirit and it pounces. It's there in the theater of your mind, always lurking. And you have wondered if you're ever going to have victory over it. The worst possible foe, the thing you have battled more than anything else, that's the lion in your life. But this Benaiah man, amazing. Because he not only met the worst possible foe, he met him in the worst possible place, a pit. If you're going to fight a lion, the one place to avoid is a pit. If I'm going to fight a lion, I want to be in a great big open field with plenty of running room and some trees with low limbs. And that's where I want to go because I don't want to be with the, my greatest foe in a pit where I can't get away, where I'm trapped, where there's no escape, and I'm going to have to face him. But sometimes God allows us in a pit so that we will face our lion and once and for all deal with him. But it even got worse for Benaiah because Benaiah met this lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And that, that just tripled the treachery of the situation. Because snow numbs the fingers and he was using weaponry like a sword that he could hardly hold on to in that cold because the snow had fallen. He, he was with a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He couldn't hardly hold on to the sword or the knife or the spear or whatever he had. Snow numbs the fingers, makes it difficult to handle weapons. Snow makes footing treacherous and slippery. You're, you're going up against a lion and your feet are slipping underneath you. You're going up against a lion and you can't hold your weapon. 
You talk about the odds stacked against you. Here's what you do when you're in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. You say, Lord, I give you this lion. Because if you don't come through, I'm cooked. Lord, do you see this lion? Because he's coming at me and my feet are slipping underneath me and I can't hold on to the weapon. And man, this is, this is not a good situation. This is not what I planned on when I woke up this morning. And isn't it funny how our lions approach us in our weakest moments? And it's it something the way the enemy can bring your lion your way when your feet feel slippery, you're not having your best day, you feel like you can't hold on to the weapon called the Word of God very well. You're kind of struggling with some things. And right when you're in that pit on a snowy day, here comes your worst foe creeping up on you with every intention of having you for lunch. Now, here's the deal with this story. I want to know how he won. Because the odds, I look at this Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and I go, how could he have won? Well, the Bible story doesn't directly tell us. We're just told that he went into a pit on a snowy day with a lion and whooped him and came out and became David's bodyguard. And so, at first, there's no clue, but then I find there is a clue. And the clue as to how he beat a lion in a pit on a snowy day is found in his name. In the Bible, when you want to know what a man or a woman is like, you look at their name because God intentionally named people according to their character and their call. That's what he did. Biblical names are deliberately designed to give us a clue to the character of the person we're reading about. When we see in Scripture that God would change the name of somebody who he had touched and changed inside, he would then change their name to catch them up with it or to, to newly identify them. You see, if we lived in the Old Testament, almost everybody in here would already have had a name change. Because how many of you can say, the Lord has changed me? I'm not who I used to be. Well, see, you would have a different name if we lived in the Old Testament. God would have changed your name. Now, I think it's interesting that Revelation tells us we're going to be given a new name in heaven. For instance, Jacob meant usurper, supplanter. We might say con man. But God changed his name to Israel, which means prince with God. When Jacob went through a transforming experience in his life with God, God changed his name. He changed Abraham's name from Abram, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. He changed Sarah's name from Sarai, meaning dominating, to Sarah, meaning princess. I think Abraham liked the second one better. Jesus changed Peter's name. He said, your name is Simon. It's not going to stay Simon because of what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to make you like a rock. And so I'm going to change your name from Simon to Peter, the rock. That's exactly what happened to him. He became like a rock in Christ. So God names people according to their character. So that being said, what does Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, mean? Well, you'll notice that he's always named after, with his father coming after it, Beniah, the son of Jehoiada. So his father's name is also important in the name and in our understanding who he is. If you take the meaning of those two names, you get the secret of how to kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Jehoiada, his father's name, means God knows. 
Benaiah means God builds. Can you say with me? God knows. God builds. Please remember that because many of you in here are dealing with a lion as I speak. If you're not, you will one day because we are in a battle on this earth and there's two things you've got to remember that God knows and God builds. Those two truths will empower you to defeat your lion in a pit on a snowy day. First, let's deal with them. God knows. When you face your lion, it's important to remember that God knows where you are. God knows. God never looks down and says, well, I'll be. What are they doing in that pit with a lion in a snowy day? He knew you were going to end up in the pit before you got there. He knew the lion you were going to face before the lion was ever born. He never says, well, I'll be. He says, I already knew. God knows. He knows all about your pit, and he knows all about your battle. He knows all about your lion, how he got in your life, how he's going to be defeated, and what he's going to do in your life as a result of the victory you're going to get over that lion. I love the fact that God knows. David wrote, oh, Lord, you have looked through me, and you have known me. He looks, you have looked through me, and you have known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I get up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You look over my path, the road you're traveling down. If you're on the narrow road or the broad road, God knows it and he knows your path. He knows your next step and he knows you're lying down. You know all my ways very well, said David. Even before I speak a word, O oh Lord, you know it all. God is the only person who can say, I'm a know-it-all and I'm not bragging. God knows it all. He knows your name, your address, your weaknesses, your lions, your stumbling blocks, your pitfalls, your battles, your questions, your perplexities, your confusions, your disappointments, your disillusionments. He knows it all. And since he knows where you are and the pit you're in and the lion you're facing, he also knows how you feel. And that means a lot to me. Because the Bible says that in Hebrews 4, verse 15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was put, tempted in all points, every way like we are, yet without sin. So when you're angry or remorseful or impatient or tempted to get bitter, somebody's betrayed you, wronged you, done you dirty, you feel, you feel dropped in life, you feel left out, you're, you're not feeling great about yourself or about where your life is right now. God knows how you feel and he feels what you feel because he's been there in every way. He has been tempted as we are. So he knows exactly how we feel. Corey Ten Boom, I read recently, told the story, the Dutch woman whose family was taken into Nazi concentration camps in World War II, Jewish woman, Dutch Jewish woman, taken into Nazi concentration camps, and, and her and her sister, Bessie, I believe it was her name, Bessie, um, th they were there, they got brought into a room with other women full of Nazi so-called doctors, and they forced them to strip naked. And these leering 
contemptuous men stared at these these learned, educated, classy, God-loving Jewish women with contempt, and there they stood there naked, and they felt ashamed, and they felt wronged, and, and something came to Corey, and she turned to her sister and said, Bessie, remember, Jesus was naked on the cross. And Bessie said, that helped me because then I knew he understood how I felt. There's nothing you're going through that he doesn't feel with you. Isn't that good news? So say with me, Jehoiada means God knows. And then it says God builds. God builds. I can go through almost anything if I know that God's going to build something in my life through it. I can go through anything as long as I know that God has said, I'm going to work this together for your good. I can go through anything. If I know he's with me in that pit, and he is with me in the pit, and he's with you in your pit, he's right there with you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego learned that well. They refused to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They threw them into a burning, fiery oven that was so hot, it incinerated the men that threw them in. Nebuchadnezzar thought, that's the last I'm ever going to see of them. But they went down into that pit, whole, and as Nebuchadnezzar looked down, he said, wait a minute, didn't we throw three down in there? And somebody said, yeah, there were three. And he said, well, I see four. I see a fourth man, and he looks like the Son of God. Yes. And they, so Jesus appeared in the Old Testament in this story. Jesus appeared and got into the pit with his men who refused to compromise. Folks, listen, in our future in America as believers, we better learn how to get a real stiff spine made of steel and say, I will never worship anything but the Lord my God. I will never worship anyone but the Lord my God. I'm not going to do it. And all that was burned off of them down in that oven was the ropes that held them bound. And they got set free down in the oven. And that's what I want you to see is that when you get into an oven, you get into a pit and you're facing your lion and it's snowy and it's treacherous conditions and you don't feel at your best. There is one in that pit with you and he has already said, I'm going to fight your enemy for you, through you, with you. And though you can't face him alone, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have the ultimate the ultimate lion killer lives in our soul. Paul said, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We know this because God decided in advance that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Paul went through such heartache and sorrow and pain in the ministry. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He received the whip that Jesus got five times. And he wrote about it. But then after writing about his pain, he said, guess what? This light affliction is but for a moment. And it's working for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, when it comes to the child of God, the devil is never allowed to say, checkmate. God always says, checkmate to our enemy. When a Christian goes through heartaches, pressure, problems, and tribulation, they always emerge softened, mellowed, more loving, 
warmer and more compassionate because through it all, God builds Christ in us. Say it with me again. God knows. God builds. Yeah, no matter what you're going through, you're going to come out better for it. I have people that have known me for years. I was telling both services last night and this morning that people come up to me that have known me for a long time and say, you're, you're nicer than you used to be. They start making me feel like I'm, I was terrible or something, but they don't mean it that way. They just say, you're softer, you're more approachable, you're nicer, you're, you're, you're different. And that's because no matter what you go through, believe me, I was in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, but I found out that I was not alone, but there was one in there with me who had declared war on my lion and who had said, I'm gonna bring you down to the lion. And I came out of that pit, softened, mellowed, more loving, warmer, more compassionate, because I have compassion on people going through things, because I have gone through things, and I can tell you that the enemy wanted to take me out, and he wants to take you out, but he, God will never allow you to remain at the mercy of your lion. He will see you through. Come on, church, I'm telling you today. Paul came out on the other side of it, and I'm going to say this in closing. He said, this happened so we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He said, I learned a huge lesson in that pit with a lion on a snowy day. We thought we were going to die, he tells. He writes, we thought we were going to die. We didn't have the strength to keep going. We didn't think we could live. We thought we would die. He openly says that in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. But they came out of the pit, and he said, here's what I learned. God kept us from what looked like sure death. He is keeping us, and he will keep us in the future. Past tense, he kept us. Present tense, he's keeping us. Future tense, he will keep us. You know what we are? We're kept people. We're kept people. So stand with me today, would you? And I want you to repeat this with me. The secret of survival, when you're with a lion, in a pit, on a bad day, is to say, God, I give you this lion. And then say, God knows and God builds. He knows. He builds. Father. Thank you for your word today. If you are in a pit with a lion, or you're facing a lion and there's no pit yet, but you're afraid there might be one, raise your hand and I want to pray for you right where you are. You're facing a lion, your greatest foe. God sees you, many of you. Bless your heart. God bless you. Lord, I pray for these that have their hands raised, and I thank you that you are greater than their lion. You are greater than what they're facing. And I pray in Jesus' name, show them your power in that pit so they can emerge from on the other side as Paul did with lessons learned, more mellow, more loving, more compassionate, more able to reach out to others. Thank you that you're building in them right now. In Jesus' name.